Welcome back to the John D. Sperry Podcast, Episode 2. If you didn't catch Episode 1, Episode 1 was the prologue of my book, Lamp. You're going to want to go back to that one because this podcast acts like an audiobook. Every chapter is a new episode. Every episode is a new chapter. So if you miss one, you're going to want to go back and listen to them. I think you can figure that out. So at the end of this whole thing, I'm going to have an audiobook. Anyway, I want to jump right into it. Today is uh, chapter one. Um, but before I do that, really quickly, I just want to let you know that um, I would love ratings and comments wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, um, Google Play Music, TuneIn, wherever you listen to this, please rate me, uh, rate it, and uh, give me some feedback. I'd like to know what you think. And remember, stay tuned after the presentation of Chapter 1. I'll be back with some commentary. Um, let you know uh, what it was going through my head while I wrote this. So, without further ado, here is Chapter 1 of Lamp. Chapter 1 fell hard on the main entrance of Simic's dwelling, and the old man struggled to pull open his eyelids as they were weighed down by the delirium of sleep. He uttered a labored groan as he rolled his elderly body over to look at the bedside chronometer. 7.02 a.m. He couldn't quite recall the moment when he was no longer getting old and had simply become so, but he hated it and often wished he hadn't missed it like missing the morning transport out of the city. Zaday! Simic called as he threw his wrinkly dry feet off the side of the bed. There was no immediate response, but in the fog of his less than lucid state, he heard footsteps coming toward his bedroom. I've got it, father, Zade said as she came into view at the bedroom doorway. You lie down. It's probably just a knocker. I'll get rid of him. Simic's daughter consoled her father, referring to street spammers known to drop kilos of advertising leaflets on doorsteps every morning to drive citizens to the markets. Simic knew that the sound of the door was no knocker. It was most definitely messengers from the palace. The old man sighed heavily as he rubbed his eyes clear. As Zade passed through each of the rooms adjacent to the sleeping quarters, lights faded on and data screens sprang to life. It was the effect a girl like her had on a place like Simic's workshop. By all physical appearances, Zade was a typical 18-year-old girl, if not slightly more physically fit. Conceived and raised her entire life in the desolate metropolis that was Bag City, a dying beacon of capitalism located in the hot desert of Earth's middle continent. For very specific reasons, Zare didn't fit in with others her age, so Simic made certain she spent very little time away from home. Despite prejudices others felt about her, she had enjoyed her sheltered life growing up in the sweltering but technologically charged environment that was the city. She was built lean and strong, though perfectly feminine in her curvature with well-balanced legs on slender ankles. She was healthy-looking, no boniness or emaciation to her like so many of the fashionable girls who strutted around the city looking for favor among the rich courtiers of the sultan's court. Her face was narrow with eyes the exact tint of iced tea that, in the sunlight, reflected the color of sparkling amber. Long sheets of nearly black hair fell over her shoulders like an unobstructed waterfall, framing red lips and ivory teeth in a symphony of near-inhuman beauty. She couldn't have been more gorgeous. 
Her daily attire was a long, flowing, cream-colored blouse, very typical of the region and the fashion of the city. Dark blue pants covered in utility pockets, very atypical of such a young lady in a metropolis, and a thin purple cotton scarf draped over her shoulders to protect her face and neck from the blistering rays of the sun and the cutting winds of the daily sandstorms. As she made her way to the front door of the dwelling, she flipped on a small monitor connected to a vid lens attached to the outside wall in order to make it easier to see who was knocking. On the screen, she made out two figures with veiled faces, and she sighed heavily. Definitely not knockers, she said as she noticed a familiar yellow crate sitting behind the men, barely in view of the wall-eyed display. With another sigh, she pressed a button that opened the door. With a whoosh, a gush of sweltering morning air rolled in as the guests stepped over the threshold. Both men wore the garb of the Civil Patrol, the police of Bag City. Long beige robes made of thin cotton, neatly pressed with the logo of their squad printed on the back. Long slits in the robes revealed dark blue pants with pockets up and down the legs. A turban of similar material to the robe was wrapped around each of their heads and faces to protect them from the elements. Where do you want it, sweetie? One of the officers asked coarsely as he and his partner set it down. The container was obviously heavy as both men breathed laboriously, simply moving it from outside the door to just inside. Zadeh went over to the container and opened the lid. A wave of disappointment washed over her as she examined the contents. Her right eye began to twitch involuntarily, and she had to slap a hand over it to stop it. This'll be fine, she muttered as she stood and lifted the crate with ease, walking it into her father's workspace in the adjacent room. One of the men, a slender big-nosed man that was unfamiliar to Zadeh, gawked as she had no problems with the weight of the crate. Come on, let's get out of here, the officer in charge said. His name was Kadem, and Zadeh knew him well. He was a fat, stern sergeant in the civil patrol that always brought the crates back. But she just... said the unfamiliar officer as he gawked. Yeah, I know, Kadem said as he headed out the door back into the heat. She's one too, let's go. She's one too? But she's so... Yeah, yeah, I know, shut up and... Before another word could be heard, Zade pressed a button and the door of the dwelling slid shut. She walked back to the workshop and picked up the yellow crate, its weight not even enough to break her concentration, as she sought a way to keep her father from seeing it. He didn't like this one either, eh? Simic grumbled as he walked out from the back room, dressed in his work overalls and flowing beige robe, a pair of wireframe spectacles resting atop his balding head with its few strands of white hair dancing above him. Surprised, Zadeh's head whipped around to see her father had already seen the crate. With a disappointed sigh, she lifted and set the crate on the workbench. Please don't look, father, Zadeh pleaded. Step aside, Zadeh, and let me have a look. He's a monster, this has to stop, she said as Simic motioned her away from the crate so he could have a look. Until I find a way to fix whatever he finds incompatible, this is our life, my love. Kasim represents the government, and the government pays. We need the credits. No, this shouldn't be our life. It's not fair. By constantly building these for him, you don't have time to do your own work, to make the devices that people need. She slammed a bald fist down on the solid metal bench, putting a small ripple into the surface. If you keep doing that, my dear, I won't have a place to work. Simic faced his daughter and took her by the hands. Zade, you are my most precious creation, he said. Because I have you, I have no regrets. Zade smiled and embraced her aging father. Now let's take a look at what he's done to this one, he said, pulling away from his child's tenderness. No, please don't, father, Zade begged again. This one is bad. Simic brushed her comments away and approached the crate. The box was a meter long and half a meter deep and wide, made of thick composite plastics. The two latches hung loose where Zade had left them. Simic lifted the lid and immediately groaned. Was all this necessary? It'll take me days to recover anything. 
he said disgustedly. She was so beautiful, too. Look what they've done to her. The frustration of the elderly man was difficult for Zade to bear, and she balled another sympathetic fist. Simic looked down at the machine he had finished building just days before. Reaching into the bin, he extracted a head that looked very much like that of a young girl in her early twenties. Her cheeks were fair and blemishless, her lips radiated a stunning candy redness, and the shade of her hair was wheat gold, very uncharacteristic of girls in Bag City. She was exotic in every way, and she was returned in pieces. The girl was a mecha, an android, a machine designed to have skills that have been lost or nearly lost among humans. Simic was a master mecha builder, and had been one of the leaders in creating artificial intelligence in another life. But certain circumstances led him to being forgotten in a new world that valued quantity over quality. Simic took pride in his work, and pride couldn't compete with the factories from the east. I don't understand it, father. This one was perfect. Your best work. So exotic, Zade said sympathetically. No, my dear, not my best work, Simic replied with a knowing smile at his daughter before returning his morose gaze to the mecha in the crate. Zade took the cranium in her hands and examined the face. Both optics had been completely blown out by plasma blaster fire. The hair was cut and stuffed in the mouth. Zade didn't have to look to see that the mecha hadn't been folded back into the crate. Her limbs lay strewn in burnt pieces over the remains of her torso. Who knows what damage they've done to her neural system. Her positronic web is most likely a fried mess, Simic said as he retrieved the head from Zade, green, oily mecha lubricant dripping from the base of the neck. He finds one small error in her and sends her to be exercise fodder for those police goons so they can mutilate her in the name of domestic security, those so-called officers of the common good. Simic shook his head and closed the lid again. I don't understand why he can't just send her back for an upgrade, Zade asked, matching her father's discontent. Because even men can have flaws in their neural makeup. The minister of security is just such a man. He has a few loose pathways in that brain of his. Zade shook her head. It's wrong. As Simic finished clamping the mecha's head into the positronic scanner, the dwelling door slid open with another blast of hot air. Through it burst a rather awkward-looking figure that Zade knew well. He was a boy, 16 years old, of average build for a teenager with shaggy medium-brown hair. His skin was paler than that of Zade and Simic, but because of the constant layer of grease and dirt that covered his hands and face, no one could really tell its true pallor. The boy had deep crystal blue eyes that were difficult to ignore, especially when he was passionate about something and became very animated. In his arms, he carried what had become his usual load, a shoulder bag, which contained his most valuable possession, and an old faded yellow crate filled with what seemed to be a random assortment of hardware and mecha parts. The door closed and the boy dropped his crate onto a tatty overstuffed chair before unwrapping his headgear. His eager beaming eyes looked straight on towards Simic and Zade. Look at my haul, he said enthusiastically. Where did you get all that? Zade said with narrowed, scrupulous eyes. Ladin Shahara looked down at his crate. It's not what you think. I heard that Jazim took off and left all of his stuff. It's not like I poached it or something. Yes, but did Jazim poach it? Zade asked with her arms folded in front of her. Come on, he's a streetjacker, not a criminal. It's all salvaged from the gut. Where did he go? Asked Zade with concerned eyes staring hard at her friend. Ladin shrugged, deliberately avoiding eye contact. Don't know. I guess he was done with Bag City. Another streetjacker is missing and you think he moved? He's what, the third one this year to just pick up and leave? Where are they going? It's not like they have options in the East or with the Africanes, Zade said with more concern than Ladin seemed to have for his own missing colleague, if one could call streetjackers colleagues. 
He probably just went south to the Gulf. There's some demand for data ripping down there with the old ports reopening. Not a lot of business here anymore. It's nothing, Ladin replied as he rummaged through his crate. Or maybe someone is trying to send a message, Zade returned. Ladin shrugged. We're streetjackers. Why would anyone care? It's not like we hurt people. We plaster the nets a little and maybe do a smidge of hacking, but nothing that's worth more than a day in confinement. I mean, unless we're poaching, I'd say we're an asset to society. From the other room, Simic scoffed loudly. I'm serious, Ladin said as he approached the old man. The net market makes a lot of credits for people like me. It's also illegitimate, Simic replied, lifting his glasses to his forehead. You need to be careful, boy. Zade is right. There very well could be someone out there who wants to get rid of your kind for cluttering up their nets. Before Ladin could discount Simic's concerns, he saw the mecha head on the scanner. His entire countenance fell and his shoulders slumped. They sent her back? He protested sadly like a little boy. I'm sorry, Ladin, Zade said, placing a hand on his shoulder as her demeanor adjusted to accommodate Ladin's sudden despair. How is that possible? I programmed her auditory vox and protocol database. She was perfect. She sounded like an angel. How did he not like that? Ladin stared at the cranium of the mecha that looked like an oversized doll head. I don't get it, he said as he pulled his shoulder bag to the front of him. They've gone too far this time, he said stubbornly, pulling his data module out of his bag. The screen of the device lit up instantly, and he started pounding away at it with his index finger. The small computer was 30 centimeters long by 20 centimeters wide and less than a centimeter thick. The alloy framework was sturdy but well-worn. Any part of it that could collect dust had collected it, but its internal workings were as fast and advanced as Ladin could keep them. Being a streetjacker had its perks. The device was his baby, his most prized possession. Look, I mapped this whole thing out. It was synced right into her pulmonary system. She was as human-sounding as I could make her. Then, just for fun, I linked it all to her main relay in her positronic web. She spoke with honey on her lips. By her voice alone, she should have been a perfect negotiator or liaison or whatever she was supposed to be for that monster son of a jackal. Ladin, Simic said in a condoling tone. This was not your fault. You did nothing wrong. No, I did. This is my fault. I messed up somewhere, Ladin replied despondently. He walked back to the front room of the dwelling and slumped in a chair, staring at his data mod screen. The first thing a person notices about a woman is her voice, and I programmed the voice. <laughs> first of all, Simic continued with a slight laugh in his voice, the first thing a man notices about a woman is her. Both Zade and Ladin lifted their heads in unison, intrigue on Ladin's face, disgust on Zade's, and Simic thought better of finishing his sentence. Well, that's besides the point, he said, and Zade sighed with relief. Look, my boy, you're a brilliant programmer, but not everyone appreciates the programming. Sometimes they just want the impossible. You know, I think they do this on purpose. They get your mechas because they're so human. They want to kill something real or almost real. Kasim is just a sicko, an animal, a barbarian, Ladin said. Trust me, I've had a few run-ins with him. He's not a nice man. Simic looked knowingly at his makeshift apprentice. You may be more right than you know, but regardless, you're a bright boy. How you got that way growing up with your background is beyond me, but nonetheless, it is the truth. Don't beat yourself up over this. You know, you keep bringing up my background. I'd argue that the streets are the best place to learn comprehensive programming, data reconfiguration, and all sorts of stuff, if you know who to talk to and learn from, Ladin said. But you're through with that life, Ladin, Zade interrupted. You're working with father now, right? Ladin shrugged sheepishly. Well, yeah, I said I was, didn't I? Zade looked him over. She could tell he wasn't being completely honest. 
Simic didn't seem to care about the direction the conversation was going, so he turned back to the mutilated head of his creation and flipped on the positron scanner as he put his work glasses back on. Ladin looked down at his data mod. The screen was lit up with a schematic rotating in three dimensions on his two-dimensional display. Zade looked down, recognizing the image as Ladin's own unique neural design. She pushed her head in her father's direction. Show him, she mouthed. Ladin shook his head to silence her. Come on, it couldn't hurt, she whispered. No, shut up, Ladin mouthed back. Zade shook her head. You're pathetic. You want to get off the streets for good? Show him. Her whisper was more of an intense rasp. Your father is a genius. I'm a street jacker. Why would he use my posi web design or software? Because he needs help, and you're not a street jacker anymore, Zade growled. Ladin shook his head. Fine, Zade replied as she stood up casually. If you don't have the confidence, she started to say. Then, without warning, she reached down with lightning speed and snatched the data mod from Ladin's hand. With a challenging glare, she headed toward the workshop. Ladin jumped out of his seat and grabbed Zade by the arm. Don't you dare, he said, more scared than threatening. He needs to see it. Ladin shook his head again and Zade pulled away. Father, she called, and Simic looked up from what he was doing. A piece of scalp lay open on the side of the blonde Mecca's head. Simic's eyebrows raised from behind magnifying lenses in response to Zade's hails. Ladin grabbed again at Zade's arm, but it was useless. You know how you said Ladin is a genius programmer, right? Hmm, Simic muttered as he fired a fine blue laser into the Mecca's artificial brain. Well, he had this design for a new routing system for the positronic web for your androids, Zade said, handing Ladin's data mod over to her father. No, I, uh... Ladin interrupted, desperately but futilely reaching for his mod. I mean, it's nothing. Don't even... Ladin started to say with fearful modesty, but he stopped protesting when he noticed Simic's slight but apparent interest in what Zade had handed him. Ladin's heart began to pound. Zade turned around and smiled teasingly at him. He's going to think I'm an idiot, Ladin whispered harshly. No, he's not, Zade whispered back. Oh, yes, he is, Ladin shot back. No, Simic said, startling the quiet shouting match into silence. No, he repeated as he handed the data mod back to Ladin. Ladin's heart sank as he stared in disbelief and embarrassment. No, I'm not going to think you're an idiot, Simic said to Ladin's dejected posture. Ladin looked up with knitted eyebrows. This is very good and worth a try, Simic said, and Ladin's mouth fell open. The next mecha I'm commissioned to make for Kasim will use your routing system. Zade shot a smile at Ladin as he blushed with pride and gratitude. Thank you, Simic. Thank you. You won't be disappointed, I promise. Ladin stroked every edge of his data mod as the room fell silent for an awkward moment. Well, I better get started, Ladin said after making eye contact with both Zade and Simic numerous floundering times. He spun around twice, absent-mindedly, before he settled on his creative parts as a destination. Zade went up to her father and gave him a hug. Thank you, father, she said in a hushed tone. Do you think it will actually work? Simic pulled himself away from Zade and held her at arm's length. He looked toward Ladin, who was rifling through his crate. It couldn't hurt, could it? I've been making these poor girls for a while now with no real satisfaction to Kasim. Why not experiment a little? Zade kissed her father on the cheek. I guess we'll see, she responded with a smile. You know what? Ladin called from the next room. I need a few things, so I'll be back in a bit. He was still bubbling over with excitement. Here, let me give you some credits, Simic said as he unlocked a small square door in the wall behind his workbench. No, Simic, don't spend your money. I've got it covered. I know a guy. He can get me as much fiber pathway as I need. Yes, boy, but how will you pay for it? I'll work it off, Ladin said, avoiding eye contact with his mentor. 
Doing what? Jacking from open networks in the markets? That's a risk for both you and your supplier. It's not dangerous. He just wants to plaster the nets. It's advertising. It's illegal, Zade interrupted as her eye twitched again. You need to get that looked at, Ladin said. Let me give you a thousand credits. Go buy your fiber pathways, but only what you need, Simic ordered as he handed over a thin plastic card with a digital readout. Ladin took it sheepishly. Okay, he said as he placed the card in a pants pocket. You want to come? He asked enthusiastically to Zade, who looked pleadingly at her father. Simic frowned. Only if you stay away from the gut. There are only disreputable types down there. Zade doesn't need that kind of trouble. Ladin twitched a little bit at the exclusion of his best resource for hard-to-find components. Stay in the open markets, Simic said sternly. You can find perfectly good components above ground with the legitimate businessmen, even if it is a little more expensive. I don't need you getting caught up in a raid. Besides, those poach parts are marked. Ladin nodded disappointedly and wrapped his head in his scarf, pulling his dark glasses down. Zade did likewise. We'll be back before middle tea, father, she said, and the two rushed out the door. The streets of Bag City were packed with people in the late hours of the morning. The temperature was already a sweltering 35 degrees Celsius when Ladin and Zade started down Trader's Row. Because of the heat, the marketers had few precious hours to vend their goods before the sun was insufferable, but more importantly, before the sandstorms began. So I need three lengths of fiber pathway, a positron relay, and... Ladin looked down at his data mod and tapped a few times. Are you ever without that thing? Zade asked. What, Jasmine? He said, holding up the sparkling screen of the mod. You've named it? Zade reacted incredulously. Well, yeah, Ladin replied. Besides, you're not really one to talk, Zade, he said with a smirk. That's different and you know it, Zade replied. Anyway, yes, I've named her. She's really my only possession. She does everything for me and I can't live without her, so yeah, if you don't mind. Okay, Zade said with a smile as they began to pass closed sandblasted storefronts. I won't bring it up again, she said with a teasing grin. Why don't we start with old Staffa, Zade said, changing the subject back to business. He's always got a supply of fibers and relays. Ladin looked down the road with a squint. No, I was thinking of trying someplace else, he said. Oh yeah, where? Zade asked with accusing skepticism. Oh, just, uh, no, I'm not going down there, Zade said, pulling on Ladin's arm. Father said no, and if they find out, I'm... How would they even know? You don't even look like one. You're too perfect. No, we can't go, she said crossly and stopped dead in her tracks. Besides, they don't use credits down there. I don't need credits when I've got this moneymaker, he said, pointing to his head. Come on, Ladin, please don't, Zade pleaded. Just get your fibers from Staffa, and then we can go to the flower peddler, she smiled brightly. Ladin rolled his eyes. Fine, he protested. I don't know why you like that shop. Those flowers smell like dead dogs. Because they're pretty, Zade replied, gushing. And that was chapter one. Now that you've been through the prologue, now that you've been through chapter one, I think uh, we're starting to get an idea of what this world is like. It's sort of a uh, dystopian universe, a dystopian world, Earth in the future. Distant future, who knows how far distant. Distant enough that there are aliens, that there are androids um, that that I guess are human enough at least for the police force to want to kill so yeah so we are we're jumping right in 
We're creating the universe. Uh, just a couple of quick notes about this chapter um, that I really like. Um, as I was writing this, I really wanted to give a sense that that this this belonged in the same sort of world category as as other books that take place in similar universes, um, things like Dune or um, dystopian sci-fi, even even Mad Max. Um, things like that where, where things just aren't quite going right for the human race, but, but we don't have all the clues. We know that there is a Sultan and, and traditionally we know that the Sultan is the leader. Um, so like the King or the president, we know there's a police force. We know that there is a, a market that, that there is an economy and our main characters are struggling to live in that economy. Really quickly about each of the characters. We're introduced to the, the first setting that we're introduced to is a dwelling, a home of, of a man named Simic. And Simic, first lines in the chapter, he's an old man. He's rolling out of bed. He feels like his life has passed him by. Um, but he has uh, uh, one thing really to live for, and that is his daughter. His daughter is Zade. Zade is an 18-year-old girl. Uh, the, the, there's a very rich description of her character in this chapter. I don't know why I went into so much detail. I think I was originally planning on going into that much detail about every character. And to a certain extent, I do, except Simic does not get a description like that. And Ladin's description, where when we introduced him, his description is only maybe half of what Zade got. Um, but Zade was the first character that I really wanted to establish. And I think that her description as it's written in the book right now is really close to my first draft of her. Um, I think I only changed a couple of little things, maybe some wording. Um, but again, I don't have that drastic, that extreme description of Simic and even Ladin, he only gets the 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 parts about his character, his description, that are super important to remember. Um, we know that he has like shaggy brown hair. He's got super bright uh, blue eyes, and that he's kind of a twitchy sixteen-year-old kid who grew up on the streets. And he's a, a hacker, a computer programmer. He designs neural software for androids because of his tutelage from Simic, and and that's all implied. So the reader sort of has to infer that Simic has been a mentor for some time. We don't know how long yet, um, but you can you can kind of infer that um, the the implication is there. So then we have we have the relationships between these characters, and if uh, if any of you have ever read my Immortal Light series, which is uh, uh, available to purchase in paperback and ebook uh, on Amazon, if you've ever read my Immortal Light series, you know that I love characters and their relationships with each other and to each other. Um, characters are my favorite part of writing. I really get into that moment where the character starts talking to me really fast. And if I don't get into that moment, I don't like the character. I don't care about the character. And usually I'll cut the character um, if they don't start talking to me. And so when I, when I wrote this book, I had already written the first two Immortal Light books. I wrote this book and I wanted to, the characters' relationships to really matter. I wanted Simic to really be that that stern but caring mentor. I wanted Zade to be also very caring and loving um, of her father 
and a best friend who who sort of looks out for Ladin. Um, the relationship between Zade and Ladin, that we're going to get into so much more detail about later. Um, so I'm not going to talk about that right now. I just want I just want you to be aware that that's where I was going. I was going for a really solid relationship. There's, there's nothing um, that's sort of weak in their relationships. Oh, there was one other little <laughs> sneaky thing that I threw in there. Um, one of my favorite stories of all time is the story of Scheherazade or Scheherazade. And if anybody's familiar with that or big fans of the 1001 Arabian Nights frame story of the girl who saved her people, saved all the young women of her kingdom, um, you will notice that Ladin's last name is Shehera, and his best friend's first name is Zadeh. So Shehera Zadeh, Scheherazade. That was a little, a little nod to the original frame story of this series of the 1001 Arabian Nights that I threw in there because I absolutely love that story. I love telling it. I love teaching it to my students. Um, the Scheherazade story is fantastic. She's a, she's a hero and she sacrifices everything herself, willing to sacrifice her life on a high risk gamble. Um, and I, I love stories that have a high risk gamble where somebody takes, uh, takes everything they have their entire livelihood into their own hands. And I, I just love that. So, Latin Shahara, Zadeh, Shahara Zadeh, 1001 Arabian Nights. There's your nod right there. So, we're now peripherally introduced also to this character of Kasim. Kasim, the chief of police. Um, the, 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 He's a brutal man, and he's not a nice guy. And 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 coming from Latin, you know, maybe every sixteen-year-old kid who lives his life on the street and breaks into networks and steals, and, and maybe of course he would think any police anybody would not be a good guy. But uh, Simic also sort of validates that sentiment that Latin has that this Kasim guy is not good. Um. And Kasim is going to come back throughout the book, and we're going to find out that Kasim is sort of the sidekick or the the number one goon or crony or lackey of the Sultan, um, who is going to come about in Chapter 2. We're going to find out more about the Sultan in Chapter 2. So now I just want to say a couple of things. I want to, I want to make a couple of comments here about what was going on in my head when I was writing this. What was I going for? Um... Interestingly enough, I was really trying to create a familiarity with the Aladdin story. And so in chapter one, we, we get all of the references to the Disney Aladdin. We have the son of a jackal comment, which <laughs> I struggled with keeping it in or taking it out. Um, we have the Jasmine reference. Aladdin has named his computer Jasmine. Again, all these cheesy references... Um, there were more, and I chose to keep these ones in to sort of add a familiarity, to go, oh, there's the reference back to Aladdin. Okay, I get it. Um, this is this is a retelling of that story. Um, that's one thing. Um, is I, I wanted people to understand, even if they've never read the 1001 Arabian Nights story, and if they've only ever seen um, the Aladdin movie, and, and even if they have read the 1001 Arabian Nights story, I wanted to make sure... 
that whichever version you read, there was a familiarity there. There was a, a common sort of link to those stories. When I chose the world that I wanted this to be in, um, a lot of the dystopian books that came out around this time, we're talking about like the Maze Runner and the Hunger Games and the Divergent series, a lot of these focused mainly on the sort of advancing urban culture or the advancing sciences. Um, there was, a, there was a, a controlled world in which all of that took place that was sort of a, a, an obvious, plausible developmental stage of the world we live in now. We can see how that happened. This one, and, 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 and there's, always, there's always that sense of somebody's in control. I didn't want to follow that exact model with this. I wanted this to have um, external powers acting on this universe. I wanted to make it the universe feel big. The problem with The Hunger Games is that it did not feel big. Uh, same with Divergent. Same with The Maze Runner. There was the tiny little bubble in which those universes existed, and then they expanded out to slightly bigger ones, but it never got off the planet. It never really even seemed to get out of the region. Um, and that was always frustrating to me because I wanted to feel like this was a big deal. And so in this story, I created aliens. I created, um, you're going to find out, uh, off-planet travel. Um, Ladin goes deeper out into the solar system at one point and even leaves the solar system at another point. So while this is not a space travel book, he does travel in space and he travels to other planets. And so I wanted this to feel big, that the world he was in was not the center of the universe, that it was a tiny speck, you know, kind of like Earth actually is. I wanted to feel like it was a speck in this universe. And you're going to find out later that that speck is not really highly regarded in the rest of the massive universe of the Galactic Knights or the Lamp story. So that's what I was going for. I, that's how I wanted it to be a little bit different than some of these other um, these other books in the same genre. You might have noticed um, in throughout this chapter, there's a lot of technological jargon. And I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I have never studied robotics. <laughs> Everything I know about robotics comes from iRobot, comes from Isaac Asimov, comes from Star Trek, comes from Data, the positronic web, the neural sensors, all, all these all these terms that I use, I stole. I full-on, straight-up stole these things from other authors who created these things because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here with robotics. Um, and you're going to find out, too, later on, Isaac Asimov has the three laws of robotics, which are a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human to come to harm. A robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except uh, unless the order uh, is going to conflict with the first law. So if, if the order is to harm a human, they can't follow that order um, or allow a human to become hurt. And then the third law is a robot must protect its existence as long as that doesn't interfere with the first two laws. So a robot can't allow itself to be killed unless it interferes, or destroyed, I should say, unless it interferes. So the, these these three laws of robotics that Isaac Asimov made up, I totally incorporate these things. Um, at one point, uh, I even refer to it obscurely uh, later in the book, but the androids, which are going to be prominent um, in this book, 
you're going to find out follow the three laws of robotics. So there's a steal from Isaac Asimov. I just plucked that right out of there because it's absolute genius. So I thought that was fantastic. I, I love everything about those old sci-fi books, everything Asimov wrote. He's a fantastic author, writer, full of intrigue and genius. So I'm going to steal anything I possibly can from a genius. I just hope, uh, uh, yeah, people aren't thinking I'm plagiarizing here. So this is me outing myself. I stole this stuff. Anyway, I think that is about it for this uh, this podcast, this episode. I hope you enjoyed Chapter 1. Um, it's got a lot in there. There's a lot of introduction to characters, some world building. Um, so if you missed anything, go back, re-listen. And uh, I just want to plug in there my books, all my books, The Immortal Light Trilogy and Lamp. They're all available in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com, at BarnesandNoble.com, and most major book dealers online. If you are interested in reading those, please go buy yourself a copy. Um, I've recently reduced all the prices on Amazon. Brought them down just a little bit for you guys. Um, Amazon does not allow me to run a promotion for those things, so I just said, you know what? Let's just drop it down 20%. Uh, So I did. So I brought the prices down just for you guys. So please go, if you're interested, buy those books. And uh, we'll see you next time. This is John D. Sperry signing off for the John D. Sperry Podcast. Thank you for listening to the John D. Sperry Podcast. This podcast is written, produced, and edited by me, John D. Sperry. Additional music and sound effects are provided by EpidemicSound.com. The John D. Sperry theme song is Abstraction by Talent Studio, found at Shutterstock.com. This podcast is a John D. Sperry production, copyright 2020.